Welcome back to Dare to Feel. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, creative artist, best-selling author of Fuck Like a Goddess, transformational and spiritual mentor and coach. This series is based on my book, Dare to Feel. In each episode, we'll deepen into topics around intimacy, relationships, spirituality, healing, and beyond. In today's episode, we're speaking with Nina Renata Aaron, an author of the book, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls. This is such a juicy conversation. We get into topics around relationship, codependency, addiction, patterns of behavior that have been passed down from generation to generation, and so much more. I honestly loved this conversation, and I hope you do too. Hi, guys. I am very happy today to have Nina Renata Aaron on the podcast. So if you don't know who she is, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) So Nina writes about books, food, art, and gender. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Guardian, Poetry Foundation, The New Republic, Jewish Currents, and elsewhere. She writes a newsletter about books called Dollface. She is the author of Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, a memoir and cultural history of codependency. Welcome, Nina. So glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So, you know, I reached out to you because, well, first I saw you were on my friend Ruby's podcast, which um, I was like super excited about. And I first saw your book in my friend's bedroom probably like two years ago. It was like by her bed. And I was like, Ooh, what's that? It's like such an intriguing title. Good morning, destroyer of men's souls. <laughs> um, Thank you. And my friend was like, it's a really good book. It's a memoir of a woman. And da, da, da. it wasn't until, I don't know, I guess, you know, almost two years later that I actually bought the book and picked it up myself. And I don't know why, but as I told you in my email, I, I sat over, um, the holidays last year while I was in Mexico and and I just had this really profound moment sitting at this outdoor cafe during the last game of the World Cup where everyone around me was like shouting and like, you know, in the state of celebration and I was sitting there just like sobbing, <laughs> like <laughs> finishing reading your book and just so moved and just felt so seen and so... Um, just touched anyway. And that's what brought me to, to, to your work and to you and to getting excited to have you here. And so I think, you know, our stories are really different and, and I haven't gone through what you went through, but, um, bringing the topic topics forward of addiction and codependency and really how it relates in the space of men and women, I hadn't ever, heard someone's story revealed so honestly. So first, thank you for that. And what propelled you to share that level of depth, vulnerability, like so raw with the world? Um, Thank you so much just for reading the book, seeing me, understanding it, getting it, um, and reaching out to me. it means the world to me to hear people say things like that they felt seen reading it and that they were moved. Um, 
And also thank you for acknowledging how raw I got and how vulnerable. I don't think I set out to do that. Um, and as I've discovered in writing uh, it, and reading as a reader too, it's like I can feel it when someone is not not ready or not willing for whatever reason, even if it's like a stylistic choice to like really let it hang out. Um, and sometimes I read things, even personal writing that feels very like crafted and stilted. And even if the language is beautiful, I'm kind of like, okay, that's a different, that's happening in a different register than somebody who is like really going there. And I don't think I wanted to go there because that's terrifying. <laughs> but, but in formulating the idea for this book and, um, you know, I think the idea originally was like rather academic because I had kind of uncovered a lot of history and I wanted to sort of tell a historical story about codependency and about this kind of gendered dynamic that I had experienced and seen around me. But I also had all of this really like fevered diaristic writing from when I was in a relationship with a, a really hardcore addict. Um, and I did at some point just think, what if I just wrote in that mode and tried to convey some of this stuff in that mode? And um, I don't know. I mean, writers often talk about, of personal writing, often talk about like giving ourselves permission. And I don't know that I did that, but I was like so filled with frustration, confusion, pain. And I was writing from a place of real anguish and I just thought you know maybe it would be liberating in some way to not try to just like write a tightly controlled academic book or history book or like you know a memoir really revealing just a little bit of my life but to just say everything mm. so that's what I did but that was scary yeah it's so good and I like what you just said it's like you can feel when someone goes there or like just a little and they're holding back or they sort of like clean it up and yeah I think it's a it's such a big question for writers and also like you said it's like bringing you wove in the historical but I always found myself just like okay I want to hear her story again like I love the historical I <laughs> same I, I felt that way <laughs> yeah I learned stuff like I learned about you know I forgot his name like I it, since it's been a while since I read I mean it was it was um last holidays but you know, learning about how uh, AA was founded and how the wives would like wait outside and like, and then they formed their group and how Al-Anon was founded and how, um, you know, how a whole culture around men's addiction started and even just about um, how, I, I can't remember exactly, but like, the, well, maybe share with us a little bit of the historical so the people that haven't read it can hear, like how how this kind of dynamic, A, got kind of mainstreamified or brought into our consciousness and the, or to the collective consciousness, and, um, and what was like the most interesting thing that you learned about that? Um, great question. Yeah, I... I, I mean, I think in my just emotional desperation, like for context, I was in a long-term relationship with someone who struggled mightily with addiction and, um, and I was just brought to my knees emotionally trying to 
control that person and trying to deal with that. And I had had this experience growing up. One of my sisters had a drug problem for years. And so I was very used to playing a certain role in my family. And then I found myself playing that role in a romantic relationship, like, and it was like cranked up to 11. I mean, we just had one of those crazy, obsessive, passionate, toxic, you know, relationships that I think many people are familiar with, either from life or from the movies. But I I got so interested in like, why I was acting so wild in this relationship and why and why I why I continued to do things that some part of me knew were so irrational and um, trying to keep tabs on somebody manage their life take care of their life even though they were an adult man um, and so I, I went back to Alan on the program for friends and family of alcoholics and um, and and I started just like needing to understand how that program, had even come to be it's it is still mostly women although that's changed a lot but in my group it was a lot of women and most of us were very successful in life and on paper and then had like sort of behind the closed door like a kind of chaos and disorder that is so off the charts and so I just was like what are all these people doing here who have like seemingly together lives, but really their lives are insane. And we would share about that every week in our meetings. <laughs> and um, So I started reading about the history of Al-Anon. I also kind of wanted to understand why it was comforting in a way, but it, it didn't really, um, I still think, and I've said this on like, you know, since my book came out in many venues, and I hope that someone will, refresh these tools i think we need like a new a new group or a new you know yeah text or to update these tools in some way but so i was also curious like why does alanon feel like it's always in a church basement and there's like a certain <laughs> vibe that just is not mine and even though i desperately needed it and arguably it helped save my life um so I started reading about the history and what I learned was I learned a lot about the way that Al-Anon grew out of um, a kind of in the era of prohibition and the women's Christian temperance union, like in the temperance moment, there were a lot of women who were, they had no economic power um, and so if their husbands were alcoholics, they, their lives were just completely devastated by that. And they had no recourse. They couldn't get divorced. They couldn't work. They couldn't, you know, I mean, they couldn't support a family <clears throat> and care for a home and a family. And so during that era, women had like used their <laughs> feminine wiles, for lack of a better word. I mean, they got really educated about the law, but they also sort of used what was called, I remember in one book, like their powers of moral suasion. They didn't have any political power or economic power, but they did have the kind of moral high ground of being able to say, you're all alcoholics and you're destroying our lives. And at that time, men were drinking in like record amounts and women were not hanging out in bars and saloons. And what it was, was like that around, um, I mean, that's like really around the 
end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century. And, um, and in the end of the 19th century, women got really organized. Um, and I started reading some of the speeches and some of the materials from the women's Christian temperance union, which was a really fraught organization. And I have to say like, you know, if we're using today's lens in terms of racial politics and all kinds of other considerations, it's like, it's not that cool, but it was also pretty feminist and pretty progressive for what it was and when it was. Um, yeah. Also that they made these world, like, I mean, in, in America or wherever it wasn't <laughs> not known for being a very progressive era at all. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So we were like, you know, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot to be said about, about those particular women, but some of them were very progressive activists who, you know, the women's Christian temperance union was also fighting for um, raising the age of consent, like all kinds there. I mean, they were, they were like, they had a progressive agenda wow. about, you know, education and clean streets. And they, they were really like, um, not just about booze, which is sort of how they're remembered. And they're remembered as sort of killjoys, but really they were, some of them were really politically savvy. And they, I read a lot of their speeches and they were so, they sounded like they were going through the same things I was. Wow. <laughs> they were just talking about, about the feeling of living with the chaos of a man's alcoholism and, and that it kind of upends your life in ways that you wouldn't even necessarily, you know, in AA, we say alcohol is like cunning, baffling and powerful, but it's not just like somebody's drunk and that's a pain in the ass and you have to deal with them acting. You know, it's like it, it kind of seeps into every facet of your existence in a way that is, overwhelming. So I read some of those women. And then um, I also learned about the ways that that movement and other movements informed the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1930s. Um, And then its offshoot, Al-Anon, which was kind of seen as like the women's auxiliary, the women's chapter, um, which was actually really cool because the men would gather for these meetings and Bill Wilson, who's the person whose name I think you couldn't remember the founder of a, um, and his wife, Lois, like she also was very involved in a from the very beginning in the thirties. Uh, but she was discovering that even like once her husband had gotten sober and he'd been a really down and out alcoholic, he got sober and she, was still sick as she would put it like she was still angry manipulative controlling deeply resentful and annoyed annoyed and now by his health and by his meetings and by his exercise regimen and which like anyone who's been in that situation knows that feeling too you're just like when will you get sober you have to get sober you have to get sober and then they get sober and you're like I hate this sober version of you you're always leaving you always have meetings you and your guys you and you know like And so she had the experience that of realizing like she still had a lot of work to do on herself maybe in order to like deal and get okay with herself. Um, and so Al-Anon was founded, um, I imagine probably because the husbands wanted the wives to stop nagging or bitching or whatever was the idiom then. And, um, and the wives were, 
as you said, like sitting outside the meetings, they'd baked the coffee cake and they were just like waiting for their alcoholic husbands. And they got to talking about like how hard it all was. Um, and that was the history that I learned that like, um, it really freed me to see my own behaviors in a historical context and to see that, you know, obviously it's very hard to argue that certain behaviors are um, the direct, you know, have been directly caused by historical happenings. But fortunately I'm not a scientist, so I don't need to like prove it. I just had this hunch that like, I'm not the first one to go through this and, and I looked back into the history and saw that some of my behaviors were kind of historically conditioned. Like I thought, of course, women are manipulative or subtly controlling in these ways or seizing power where they can, because this all is an outgrowth of women having to adapt without any political or economic power. They've had to come up with ways to like control the purse strings when they didn't have bank accounts or to you know, to like sudden, subtly control the homestead. Um, So it was just really fascinating to me. And, but I would agree with you that um, I would have liked to just write that juicy love story. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's like, I felt kind of bad every time I like yanked the reader back to like the 19th century. I thought that people would be like, oh God. But I, I felt like my story wasn't enough. Once I like, put these historical dots together I was like this is kind of mind-blowing to me and and it gives some texture to everything I was writing about in my own contemporary life yeah well it was great to learn that stuff and I mean it does put it into perspective and hearing you speak I'm like you know it almost so depersonalizes it to consider that especially those of us who have this sort of you know Euro immigrant colonizer, whatever the men, the men who are great grandfathers and great, 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 great grandfathers and who were existing during that time in the United States, um, here and surviving. And when alcohol became something that was really popular, who were surviving using a lot of alcohol, it's like, it's so in many of our family systems and, you know, it's just like, and, and I can think back, I mean, I can look at my mother and I can look at my grandmother on my um, American side, on the Brazilian side, it's a little bit different. Um, but on the American side, it's like, yeah, they were immigrated from Ireland and England and Czech Republic. Um, and it was a thing, you know, it was just a thing. It was a part of their world. And I, I mean, I can't sit and have a conversation with my great grandmother my great, great, great grandmother around, Hey, talk to me about the men and like, were they drinking and were you trying to control them? And were you like (laughs) trying to manage the home and get what you need and then getting resentful and then withholding love or withholding sex. And like, you know, these dynamics that I have seen myself play out. And so there's something about the historical context that feels freeing to be like, Oh, this is a, like, this is an art. It's not archetypal because it it is very conditioned, but this is a, a a response. Like it's a pattern. And here we are X generations later 
having these conversations about something that, um, that was probably passed down to us in many, many ways. And it's like, I don't like to look at it as like, oh, we're noble and we're doing the hard work. Cause I do think I'm sure our moms and grandmas and they were doing really hard work in the way that they could at the time without as much freedom, like you mentioned. Um, and I also, it's like the awareness that we have and the tools and resources nowadays. It's like, it's like, well, we have the tools to make the change. Does it make the change? Does it make the process easier? <laughs> no, <it's>, you know. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we have an awareness and we have the space and the freedom as women to make choices. So yeah. Anyway, all goes to say that I think it's helpful to know the context and like, why we are where we are yeah I think exactly and I think I think history can be really a comfort I mean I I seek comfort there now because our world feels so scary and um (laughs) and intense but I feel like this was really I think when you're going through one of these situations and you're in a relationship that's really charged and volatile and in some cases violent, or it is so easy to hate yourself. And, you know, you develop like a tremendous amount of shame and insecurity and it feels like you're hiding like a secret that is just yours. And I think just connecting it to this history and understanding that this is not like my individual pathology only. It's like, this is part of a larger story and a larger way that people have like adapted over time to like changing circumstances and to alcohol and the availability of alcohol Yeah, and other substances. I think it was really, that was like a a healing moment for me. And I was able to sort of do that also with the history of my family. Like you mentioned, you know, prior generations in our own bloodlines have been dealing with this, you know, and so it was really... I needed to sort of make it make sense for me. And so I also looked at my family history and that was healing too. Yeah. Um, Is there any particular like anecdote from your story that you could share for the audience that kind of illustrates you going through this challenge? I mean, there's tons of them in the book, which I hope everybody reads, but like a moment where you really felt like you were seeing this pattern play out, um, this dysfunctional pattern play out, right? That, that, that eventually you took into the space of healing, which we'll get to, but is there one that stands out for you? I don't know if there's like an individual moment, but I do think about the opening scene in the book in which I am, um, dropping my ex boyfriend at the, off at the train to go to, work quote unquote but I'm not sure whether he still has a job and we just like don't really talk about it and at that point he was um like a daily user of heroin and crack and alcohol and um and in the opening scene I am dropping him off at the train and I don't I choose not to say anything about I choose not to say anything about his whether or not he still has this job and I I just dutifully hand him two $20 bills from my wallet, even though we have no money. I had no money. I have two little kids. And, um, and, but I just sort of like unthinkingly performed like my 
half of this role because I knew that that felt at the time like safer or better or more comfortable than letting him do whatever he would have to do to find the 40 bucks he would need or, you know, not knowing if he would come home. Like it was a way of preserving that tether and it, and it gave me like a really perverse sense of control over another person's life that like I was the one holding the big wallet and I was the one with a real job. Um, and things like that, when I look back on them, I'm just like, whoa, it's overwhelming to me to think about a life where that is normal. And that that was normal for me for a long time. And, you know, I would have to scramble to have enough money to like, keep a roof over our heads. Um, and that was my responsibility alone for years. And that's the kind of thing that um, I would read these old, you know, records from from women in the temperance movement, um, talking about how they had sort of like wrested control of the finances from their men, and they would like give them just enough to get drunk at the bar, like they'd give them a nickel or however much the ale cost or whatever, that they would just like, you know, in their desperation, think that they were maintaining some kind of control over the situation. And I would see things like that and be like, okay, I'm not, you know, it was this way 150 years ago too. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's like, I love this person and in a way, yeah, I'm keeping them controlled because I know, I know what they can do with this money and that they'll come back. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that there's also like that. Yeah. It is. It's so complicated. And so I remember that scene quite vividly. And whenever I read a book that has, you know, a story in it, I see the scenes in my head. So it's like I have a picture of uh-huh. the character and like what he's wearing and you guys pulling up and the trains on this side. You know, it's like I don't know if everybody has that type of um, you know, visual kind of way. Like I can I can picture the the character who your parents look like, what they look like in my mind. Um, which is funny. But, I love that. <laughs> um but so, you know, those were some of the dark moments and you really share some of the dark moments and what share with us a little bit about how you got from those type of moments where you were um, in that deeply uh, like interwoven codependent relationship, loving someone so much who was taking you on a crazy roller coaster of life emotionally and psychologically and how you got from being in that dynamic while you were still functional and being a mother and um, having a job, etc., to whatever the, the turning point was for you when you realized like you had to make a change because that's I think whether people you know are struggling with codependency or addiction or on the alcoholism whatever there's there's like a point there has to be a turning point for people where it's like okay this isn't like a a no big deal thing anymore this is actually a really big fucking deal and if I don't make a change like I could die or I could something bad could happen right what was that point for you Um, I, it wasn't what I thought it would be. And I've talked to so many people whose, whose 
turning point also wasn't, you know, it's like so many bad things happened in that relationship. Um, that, and many of them, you know, should have, could have been that turning point, that like bottom for me. Um, and they weren't. And I think, <laughs> I, I think that like that particular thing is something we can never predict, you know, and I hear people saying about people who are in abusive relationships or struggling with addiction, like, you know, I've heard people say of addicts, I wish he would just get arrested and go to jail, maybe that would get him sober right. or something. And I think like, the thing that does it is almost never the thing we think will. Um, and in my case, it definitely had to do with um, reckoning with myself once he did get sober, because this particular partner had, you know, there were periods where we were together, not together. You know, I always banished him from my home with my children when he was using. And so it was like a patchy, ongoing dynamic and relationship. But he also logged some sober time, like, it, you know, he would have a few months here, then he'd have a year, then he would, you know, and he would always go back out and it would be a huge heartbreak. But at one point, he got sober for a long stretch. He, and he still may be sober. I hope he is. Um, but I had that like Lois Wilson style reckoning with like, how little it changed anything for me. Like, it's like, you get what you want, you got what you wanted, you know, and like, here's this person who's like, chewing gum and going to AA and like really positive and seems to like, wake up feeling good in the morning and is doing his step work and going to a job and and you're still just like, I hate you, you know, I like hate everything you've done to me still. And you would think that like, you would forgive and forget, but you're just kind of left holding the bag. And then that's also really uncomfortable, because you're like, after everything I did for you, you know, like now, you're finally better. And like, I'm the bitch, you know, but it's true that you have all this unresolved stuff. Um, and I just, I think I say this in the book, but like my turning point was not around feeling like maybe I was going to die. I mean, I had had many moments and many experiences with him that were dangerous. It was more like realizing, really realizing that I was going to live the rest of my life this way mm. and that nothing was going to, that there was nothing that was necessarily going to like take me down or some decisive moment where, you know, like I run away and like flee the scene or something. I just thought this is going to be my, the rest of my life working to like support this union being treated like, you know, very unpredictably by someone who was like in love with me, obsessed with me and also hated me and had, you know, a lot of cruel words for me. Um, it was scarier to think about living that way than dying that way at a certain point. Right. And that, that was like my bottom. And also it, I mean, it coincided with a relapse of his mm -hmm. and, and, um, the threat of violence. And, um, I just snapped, like I, I had, I had reached my personal yeah. limit and I went, um, back to Al-Anon in a really, really focused way. Yeah. And 
I have so many critiques of the 12 step model, but, um, but from a place of like deep familiarity and total love and appreciation, like it's, it's flawed, but, um, it's miraculous what it can do. And I also got sober, which changed everything. Hi, everybody. Quick break here. I just want to ask, have you ordered my book, Dare to Feel? If you haven't, I would encourage you to order it now. First off, because as an author and an artist, I so appreciate you supporting my work. But second, because I want you to benefit from all of the goodies in the book. There are so many tales and rituals and writing prompts and poems about healing and transformation, all centered around intimacy, relationship, family, the heart. Second is I want to invite you to come join me in my online spiritual community where we do sensual practice, creative practice, and spiritual practice, just attempting to be well-rounded, multidimensional women. It is a women's only space. I'm offering a two-week trial that you can pop in and come to some of the live gatherings or just do some of the recorded practices at your own pace. It's really a place for transformation and expansion, and I hope to see you there. Now, back to the episode. So it's interesting. It's like sometimes you can take away that like surface dysfunction, right? Which is, which in that case was like his using or someone's drinking but even when that goes away the relational field between two people is dysfunctional and so Mm -hmm. energetically emotionally spiritually there still are these patterns that have been embedded over time and so it's like and this is something that I think really applies to anyone listening it's like you may not be in a relationship with an addict or maybe you had a parent who you know drank or something or maybe your cousin or maybe you had one boyfriend or one girlfriend or whatever but how does it keep showing up so that people can hear this because I think I see these patterns in many of us um even when we're not in a relationship with an addict right because there are these coping mechanisms that I'm not going to say just women but that many women have um taken on as a way that we deal with reality. And so how does that keep showing up again, despite or regardless, if you have an addict in your life, like share with us some of your favorite codependent. (laughs) 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 Well, I, that's a really, really interesting prompt. I I hope I can answer that. I mean, I think it's like, it's um i think that people who are codependent and like you know that term too has come up for debate i still use it because it feels meaningful to me but i know that a lot of people have other ways of talking about it if you're a people pleaser if you're codependent i mean i think that we tend to have a sense of ourselves as really like self-sacrificing and self-abnegating and like people who put everything aside to like do for other people And, um, that is a very, like, um, it's a very useful, I mean, it's like a, it's a nice idea to have about yourself that you are like 
always doing in the service of others. I think it's bullshit. Like, I think that that's what we tell ourselves so that we don't have to look at the other side of those behaviors, which is that when you are a people pleaser, you're often spreading yourself too thin, resenting all of the kind gestures you are doing, resenting that people have that expectation of you. It's not like you're showing up being fully present and like you're just generous of spirit and that's why you're doing these things. You're usually like compensating for some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're acting out of some kind of damage and you are um, not bringing your full self to those. Like I, I always was just feeling like I was doing so much for so many people and was expected to do that. But when I later reflected on it in like a healthy way, I thought, was I ever really like present for all of those things? I was kind of like um, ticking the boxes and believing some a really powerful story about myself that enabled me to feel really righteous and really smug and really put upon and um, and perpetuated my martyrdom. But in the end, it wasn't like I looked back and was like, I was really a wonderful friend to all of those people. It's like, I wasn't really there. And I was also like, really resentful. And I hid that really well. But I think that um, when we are like, out of whack, like when we are um, doing things out of a sense of like, ourselves as doers of things for other people, rather than like a genuine desire to do something like those behaviors continue. I continue to like grapple with those things. And I think that even when addiction is not in the picture, um, I mean, I think addiction is like an intensifier, but I see all these patterns in like even good relationships in my midst. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, I think that there's a kind of, I think every relationship is like built on stories about, ourselves and about the other person and um and so the fact that like a codependent dynamic as you said is not fixed when that person gets clean or whatever it's like yeah that the the relational field the all of the narratives that like we've developed about what this thing is about who you are to me who i am to you the kinds of people we are those haven't been altered and um And so I think like we still respond to one another as those people. It's just like one person happens to not be using drugs today or whatever. And to really do the deep work of, of, you know, the, the renovation of those like ideas, I think would, I think that takes a big commitment. And I know people in relationships who are having to do that have been together a long time and there are no drugs or alcohol in the mix, but it's like, they're still grappling with like the ideas they had about themselves and each other from 20 years ago now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, if you're a person who had to develop that code or not had to, but who developed codependency, um, at some point in your life, right. It could be in childhood, could be adulthood, but you do carry those behaviors into any relationship. And so it's like, you know, I think people, 
obviously codependency is like a, a wide bucket and I'd like to define it. Or I'd like to hear your definition. And one thing that I hear people mistaken are on, which is my opinion, of course, is like thinking that codependency means that they're dependent on someone. And I understand that there's like a thread of that that's nuanced, but you know, when I see codependency, it's like, no, I'm trying to fix somebody. I'm trying to control them, I'm trying to change them. I'm doing it very manip- very sweetly, very people pleasery, very bad <laughs> around the corner, behind the door, like, um, and I'm self-sacrificing, I'm self-abandoning, um, I'm self-censoring, and I'm doing all of that to get love, to get attention. Um, and so all of that, it's like, you know, this, again, this is my understanding via my journey, but that those patterns, I mean, regardless of who we're with or where we are, we just bring them. It's like, if I learned somewhere in my life that in order to get love or in order to get safety, I had to, you know, self-abandon and contort myself into a pretzel and like control someone, but in a way that they don't, they don't see outwardly, you know, <laughs> and now, now as, as, as an adult who's in a healthy relationship, like I see those things come through all the time and I can name them. I'm like, oh shit, that was totally me totally. controlling you and micromanaging. I'm like, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, and like my partner and I can laugh about it now. And then we cry about many things in therapy together. But the but what I've seen is that I see those patterns in many, many people that I love, especially women, um, and that they're not always understood as, yeah, these are ways that potentially we saw our mothers act in order to feel safe or in order to feel loved. And then we took them on and they don't always relate to being with an addict. So anyway curious like your defi- your definition of codependency um because i feel like people have m- misconstrued it and to me that that was kind of my messy definition um yeah that was a really good definition actually okay. i loved your <laughs> definition yeah and i that think i mean I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think um i think that's exactly it and i would i mean I, what i would add is like i see it as a need to be needed Mm. and to feel essential to someone else's existence. And I think that comes from a deep insecurity that we're socialized to have as women. We're like, you know, living in the patriarchy bred to be ferociously competitive with one another and for male attention. And um, I think that, I, I think that there's like, I think that also comes from that's like a historically conditioned behavior. Like that was one of the things I discovered was like this need to be needed. It's like, yeah, if, if men and the dominant culture have convinced you that you're basically like interchangeable with any number of women, you could be swapped out for like a younger, prettier model at any moment. It's like, that's all like the logic of the culture we live in. And so it's like, what are you going to do to make yourself truly indispensable to a man so that he can't leave you and and that um 
that was some of the stuff that came through to me, even like, you know, in the much more prim 19th century, <laughs> like, you know, they kind of even went there because it's, it's true that like, if you're living with the kind of the, the abiding uncertainty of like male attention that you have to like grab it and keep it and that you have to be beautiful and that you have like, it's like, how are you going to keep this fleeting, right. you know, this attention trained on you. And so I think um, it was really freeing for me to understand that like at the core of a lot of these behaviors was a deep insecurity or even like self-loathing because I, had to really in therapy and in Al-Anon really get to a place where I understood that I must have believed that if I wasn't paying this person's way, enabling his addictions, being his rock, making it possible for him to like have a car to use or a house to live in or food or that I wasn't worth loving that he wasn't going to stay just for the me part of me it had I had to like be offering all these other bells and whistles and that was really um profound and profoundly sad that was like the saddest point in my recovery Mm. um and fortunately I have had the opportunity to heal on my own and then also now to heal in like a beautiful relationship with an amazing person who like I have very similar experiences as what you just described of like all my controlling stuff comes out and I have to be like, Whoa, I see what I just did there. (laughs) But he's able to like have a sense of humor about that and a sense of, you know, have the context and be understanding about it. Yeah. But yeah, I think that I think codependency is, um, I think it is like, uh, under the guise of people pleasing, it is like a, a kind of set of controlling or manipulative behaviors. Yeah. And it's hard to look at that part because it's much more fun to just be like, I, as I was just saying, like, it's, it's more fun to see yourself as just like a giver and everyone else is a taker. And like the martyrdom is one, that whole side of it is one side of it. Right. But like the, the people I know who really get better are the ones who are willing to be like, Oh, whoa, I was trying to like control a person's whole life. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I don't know why that, that, that's the side I've noticed in myself the most. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when you were talking, I'm like, Oh, right. The martyr. So for me in my younger relationships that showed up as trading my power for love, like, Mm-hmm. So I would help people in their careers and like help them get their yep. shit together. And it was like, you know, someone dated me and we'd be together and it would be like, I was redoing their whole artistic <laughs> thing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and at the time I, I just was like, well, yeah, I'm a fucking creative badass. And so of course I'm going to offer this. And I think it wasn't until you know, I had my own kind of deep dive. I didn't go through the 12 steps, but I was like, oh, I could, I could step into any 12 step meeting and have a great time with my own shit because like there's stuff here that needs to be really dealt with. Um, and at that point I was like, oh wow, all my relationships, there's been this 
uh, covert contract that I've asked people into, like that they, I don't even know if they were totally wanted it, you know, but like that I would help them, you know, and, and for me, it wasn't helping financially, like, to, but it was like, I'm going to, oh, okay, you're an editor. I, I'm going to introduce you to the people I know in New York who are going to help your career. And like, I advanced several exes' careers, you know? <laughs> This is such a thing. I mean, I know so, so many of my friends, like I, we've talked about this. Like, I'm like, what, what is it that makes a woman sometimes like, it's like a one woman consultancy or like doing PR for this guy, you're doing his LinkedIn, you're doing, you know, and, and it's like, and poor men, I mean, you know, with an asterisk, I say poor men, but, but they are also socialized to, you know, rely on the women they're with as like therapists and, you know, personal trainers and you know it's like they they're not socialized to like ask for the help they need or know where to find it or talk to each other about a lot of these things and I feel for them too because like they don't benefit from a necessarily maybe their careers are advanced but like I don't think that we do always benefit from relationships that are that are based on, of course, we want to like help and support the people we love and the people we're with, but I know exactly what you yeah. mean. Like that kind of, that kind of like over-involvement in like the fundaments of someone's life that are like really their responsibility. Exactly. Like it's doesn't feel good. It's not good for anybody. No. And, and for me, it showed up. I also was in some queer relationships. So it showed up with women too. It wasn't just men. It was like, I was like, Okay, let me get your shit together for you. Like basically anything, anybody <laughs> at a certain time. But now I do that as part of my job, which is nice because there's a boundary there. Good, yes. But, you know, uh, in my relationship now, at the beginning of the relationship, I was just like, Alexandra, do not. So now if we have those conversations around like, oh, you like my opinion. I don't offer my unsolicited advice on his work I don't offer my opinion because for me it is it is a slippery slope for some women it may not mm -hmm. be a slippery slope but for me it's like I have to sit and I'm like if if this person comes to me and says hey would you look at this would you help me with this then I can I can do that but I also have to watch that I don't overgive. And totally I, I have joked to my friends when um you know there was a point early in my current relationship where um people were like are you going to move in together are you going to get married or you know and I was just like I'm not to be trusted around men like I'm like <laughs> I'm like I need to just keep working on my stuff so that I can just like keep my life really full and whole on its own and like enjoy all the wonderful things about this relationship deepening without I, you know, I'll be like cooking three meals a day for somebody and like finding out his favorite foods and then finding the recipes that, you know, it's just like, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't fully trust myself yet. Yeah. You know, that's a process. And so taking it back to like, do you think even before this relationship that, that you really highlighted and wrote about in the book, was there something in your early childhood that made you somehow decide that in order to get love or be loved, you had to essentially trade or give so much of yourself. Was there something that you feel comfortable sharing that felt like 
you had an aha later in your recovery journey or your therapy journey as to why that kept happening. Definitely. I mean, for me, it was being a middle child in a family where um, hardcore drug addiction showed up when I was a teenager and, um, and my older sister developed a heroin addiction that really upended our hitherto very normal, stable suburban life. It just like kind of erupted and, um, and some patterns that were probably already there or like that just kind of, um, amplified ways that I already was. I was like really interested in like adult conversation and, and always like, you know, couldn't wait to get older and be a grown up. And, but during that time, um, I think my dad was like kind of emotionally absent and my mom was obviously a wreck over with worry over my sister. And, um, and I became kind of the other parent and I have since learned that that's a really common dynamic for people who deal with codependency issues later in life, especially like, you know, women who often they became like parentified in their relationships, um, with one parent, usually the mother when they were growing up. And so I, um, yeah, I was really my mom's confidant and like kept her company through that, like really horrible harrowing period of years. And my sister is like thriving and amazing, doing great now. Thank God. But, um, I think I was over relied upon by adults and, everything was shared with me. And I also was really close with my sister. So I was always feeling like I was like keeping her secrets or I was going through her stuff. My mom would say like, go when she was out, go in there and go through her bag, you know? And so I've, you know, my mom and I have had to work through all that stuff too, which has been healing. And my sister, I I think, um, but, but it was really revealing and really useful to me to be able to like cast my mind back really think about that period of my life, which was really painful to think about and understand the ways that all of those behaviors, like feeling really enlivened by a crisis, feeling like, you know, really drama seeking because like that was when things were most alive in my house. That's when I got the most love and attention from my parents was when I was like part of this drama. Um, And all of the ways that like, I think we kind of believed that if we could lay our hands on the evidence, like, you know, that we could like uh, kind of control the outcome of my sister's addiction. Um, And that all, that was all in play in my later relationships, this one and others, like, you know, it was just like, I did, I was able to kind of trace it back, which was freeing. Yeah. It kind of like brings this question of like where we found that we got, that we were valuable, that there was value in who totally, we were. Totally. And that then that becomes like a central part of our identity. And so it's like, you're valuable as the good daughter who like has it together and can like go sleuth out your sister's room and show up strong in a moment of crisis, you know, and then that, exactly. that becomes so ingrained in the identity. And then what does that do? Well, it, it makes it so that 
you identify as being valuable in that way with everybody else. And then you can never be a mess and like just all of these things. Right. And it's interesting because I mean, my story is different coming from parents that, that have their own things. And, um, and I have some friends that have been more in like your situation. And it's funny because we look at our childhoods and we're like, well, we, your, your parents were so kind and loving and they were so supportive in this, in these type of ways that maybe I didn't get, but at the end of the day, the result is somewhat similar. It's like if they had to say they had a, a brother or sister who had mental health issues or who had addiction issues, they had to show up as the rock for the parent, right? The strong one. Um, and again, that then becomes the identity that we show up to for any dynamic of love. And that's how, okay, we learn how to be loved and cherished and valued. And, and it's like, that's the way. And then how, how, how would you ever have the courage to stop doing that you may not be loved you know or valued exactly right that's scary that's really scary and it's something I think about a lot as a mother because I think like you know you're um not to overinflate like the power we have as parents I think we have a lot of influence and I also think kids you know to some extent like arrive as like exactly who they are and so I don't delude myself that I'm like you know, pulling, like holding the marionette strings. But, but I do think that I'm very aware of the moments when I do validate them in that way. Like, it's like, you must know as a parent that when you say to your kid, the moment where you really like look at them and say, you're so great. It's like, that probably shouldn't be following like you oversharing about your personal life and them listening. And like, you know, it's like, it's like, if that's what you're validating, then that's like, you know, like, and that's like really activating something in their brain that they're going to have forever that they're going to think is like a service they have to provide, or that that's where their value lies or whatever. So I've done a lot of thinking about this stuff as a parent, too, because um, I really want to be careful to to have, really have boundaries with my kids, which I have to this point. I guess that's the other major word that comes up for me when I'm thinking about codependency <laughs> is mm-hmm. boundaries. And I'm glad you, you said that word because it's like so much of codependency is a lack of healthy boundaries and not even knowing what boundaries are, not knowing where they end, where they exist, like what are they? And I think for, for a lot of people's journey, it's like, re-establishing those and then I think there's a really interesting point where people get really dogmatic about the boundaries and really like sort of self-righteous about the boundaries and that's really embarrassing for everybody (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you said that I agree and and the the thing is if you've been in if you're a codependent person who's been in relationship with boundary pushers and you've said yes to boundary pushers your whole life, then you got to kind of get a little bit like feisty with your boundaries for a while as part of your healing. I totally agree. And and I'm like, kind of, I mean, I think about this all the time, because this will be like the project of my life boundaries is like, the one that's going to be, you know, with me forever. But I do feel like um, it's been challenging for me, because like, in the age of the kind of like, you know, pop psychology, self-care internet, like there's a lot of, 
I'm sure you'd get gajillions of hits on the word boundaries right now all over the place. And like, sometimes the way people practice them, it's just, um, it's like not in line with, it's like my thing will always be that like, I'm a really nice, kind person. And like the people I love are that way. And so when people are like setting boundaries in a really like aggressive way, and like, it's, um, I'm kind of like, do you totally, but I don't seek to emulate that. And, and so for me, it's like, what is the way to take care of myself and like erect a little bit more of a boundary between me and my loved ones or, or, you know, to figure out like really what I can give without sacrificing like my essential nature, which like maybe is also codependent or whatever, but like that it's so important to me to be like, open friendly like have community be you know and so like i never want to be exactly exactly but kind kind you know be kind about the i mean that is a funny thing you can see so many memes on the internet that are like set a boundary block them them." and it's like oh my gosh well good for you do that but but exactly. I do think that there's a place where when you're recovering and it's so hard to set a boundary that some people have to approach it with a hardness and a firmness and a cold. Oh, yes. I, I For a while, I, you have to go hard yeah, for a while. I don't yeah. like that. I usually still over fluff my boundaries. And I, sometimes my, my therapist slash mentor, she'll be like, Girl, no, you need to take out the five justifications that came after that. Boundary. Exactly. I'm like, no, but I just, I just really want them to feel held and cared for as I set the boundary. <laughs> I relate to that so much. Yeah, exactly. And what you're talking about, about motherhood, it's interesting. Me and my partner were talking about this last night and I was like, you know, I feel like it's so important that we don't share about some of the hard stuff that we've gone through for a really long time because I heard all of it at a very, very young age and it was very traumatic to me that my parents didn't have the boundaries and bless their hearts and they did the best they could. Um, And I look forward to being a parent who has boundaries and who's like, we're not going to have It feels so good. Yeah. It feels it's that's been very healing for me too I have to say and my parents also did the best they could and are amazing people and in a way I am like really grateful to be close to them like as adult humans in that way there's some stuff I wish I hadn't learned about until I was an actual adult (laughs) but I feel like for me, it's been a big part of my healing to like figure out how to still be like really known by my children, like fully as a human without feeling like they should be saddled with like any knowledge about the grownups around them that is like not appropriate to their age and stage in life. Like, I, so how I think, are you doing that as a writer? Cause I mean, this is a very selfish question. <laughs> I mean, they are um, almost 12 and almost 15. And so, you know, I've, I've long known that like, there may be a conversation about my book, or like, God forbid, they want to read it someday. (laughs) I maybe they will. And maybe they won't. Like I have actually, I was so kind of panicked about that at one point. And I've talked to a couple 
writers who just laughed it off and were like, oh, you know, if only our kids like cared about our work right. that much, like your kids aren't going to read your book, you know, and other people have said, yes, they absolutely will. Of course they will, or their friends will, or somebody will, and someone will tell them what's in it. And, um, you know, there is a lot that I very deliberately left out about, for example, my relationship with their father, who's not the addict in the book. And, um, you know, because I just thought, I don't need to write about my marriage to their father, my love for their father more than is necessary for this narrative. Like those are conversations we'll have later. Um, but I think that uh, it's, it's scary to like put pieces of yourself out there that are that vulnerable and know that they could find them like before it's time, you know? Um, I think so far so good i've been honest with them that i wrote about yeah they know that the book is about um they know that i'm sober that i have lots of sober people around me they know a lot about addiction because i want them to be like armed with information as they make their way in this like fentanyl soaked world and they um they know that i wrote about like some of those patterns in my life and what it was like to live with people who were going through these really hard times but like they don't need they don't need all the color yeah yet (laughs) that's a good reminder of like hopefully they're just so doing their own thing and you know they are hopefully they don't have an enemy at school that's like i googled your mom and like look at her exactly (laughs) exactly yeah and that's another reason why i didn't want to just write like i didn't want to write a tawdry book that was just like the worst parts of my story like I'm somebody who had the privilege to have like an amazing education I used all my like you know critical faculties and research abilities to write something that's like bigger than myself so that hopefully someone's not just like right no you're googling me and saying that yeah you know you're a serious writer it's important same (laughs) thank you there is some stuff if you dig deep but nothing too nothing too Tadri, as you said, good. Well, you wrote about sex, right? I mean, I mean about healing, and so like, but the book yeah. has a very clickbaity title, so you know, any other parent, great title, at the school can look it up, <laughs> unless, unless, okay, guys, don't tell people that this may be my 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 way of getting around this, but unless I don't offer my full name, like in terms of like at a school or a neighborhood, uh-huh. like we just moved into a neighborhood where they have a Facebook group, and we were like. Should we put our full names? Who do we want to be? Yeah. Like, probably not, actually. You know, because yeah. the nosy neighbor may be Googling. And I did this documentary. Yeah, I have to say, I've thought about this and I've also written about it. But oh. for me, it's been really fun to like um, publishing a book like that, sort of like naturally edited out like the very judgmental moms from my life without me having to set any boundaries or do a thing. And it was kind of magical. So maybe be that person. You're to want to change my last name. (laughs) (laughs) That's one one interpretation. (laughs) Totally called out. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I, I, I usually go by that standard too, of just like stand by your integrity and, and, and what I created has also been an integrity. Your book is too, in a beautiful way. Totally. And if, people- and arguably it's more codependent of me to not want to have any conversation, boundary setting conversations and just let the book go on ahead of me and do the <laughs> work, <laughs> work for you. Hey, can you just weed out things? Oh my gosh. This is hilarious. Okay. This is a great way to end the podcast. I could talk to you for hours. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing anything you want to share about like what you're doing now or upcoming work or ways that people can interact with you, obviously buying your book, but, uh, other things. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'm on, um, social media. My handle is my full name, Nina Renata Aaron. And, um, I love when people subscribe to my newsletter Dollface, which is a sub stack where I just write about books I love okay. that I've yeah. read recently. And um I just finished a draft of a novel. Yay! So I hope that that happens. Thank you. Thank really you. awesome. So maybe that'll be in the world. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm excited to check out your sub stack and I think this I mean your book is such a I hate I hate to say like I almost said a fun book. It's not a fun book, but it's a, it was a, it was a fun ride. I guess I will say like I, the ride was, you know, it was deep. Good. It was, uh, emotional. It was like, I was, Oh, one thing I wanted to ask last thing I'll ask is I saw it in my mind. Like I said, as a movie, because I like to visualize things in that way, or that's just how I work. But have you had any interest of someone turning into a movie? Cause I feel like it would be a great movie. Yeah, I, a little bit. I mean, I, um, unfortunately the book came out at the very beginning of COVID, like when we were still like washing our groceries and thinking we were all going to die. And, um, so it, it has had a strange and interesting life. It didn't have like, it didn't like really hit in the way that it might have at some other point I would like to think, but, um, but yeah, I've had a little bit of interest and, and I do feel like it's one of those books whose story is long. Like I think who knows, maybe, maybe it'll have a moment later and somebody will actually want to make it into a movie. I tried to write it in a cinematic way. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that there's space for it in the cultural narrative and healing and all of that right now. It's like the timing, right. That someone has to an actor or producer, someone has to really like feel the resonance and, Exactly. I think, you know, eight years ago or something, people weren't willing to really look at that as much. I think nowadays people are looking, people are paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that for you. Um, so Thank you. That would be fun. Um, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure to chat. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I want to offer you some questions for contemplation, integration, and writing if you wish. The first one is to consider, was there something in today's episode that touched you or moved you or triggered you? An image, an idea, a story? Take a moment and just think about it. Is there anything that provoked you, that reached inside of you? that perhaps brought up a memory or an idea from your life. What in this episode inspired you? Was there something that surprised you, that stood out for you? Could you jot it down just to remember? Maybe it was a concept or something 
that the guest said that took you by surprise, but that uplifted you, that brought you to some new awareness? Was there something about this episode that upset you, that provoked you, that pissed you off? Giving yourself full permission to dive into that. Was there anything about this episode that soothed your soul, that helped you feel a little bit more belonging, a little bit more at home, a little bit less like you're the only one? Taking those questions into your heart or into your journal or into your day, If anything stood out that you want to share with me, please do so on social media, direct into my DMs. I would love to hear what touched you, what moved you, what you're taking from this time together. And if this episode truly inspired you in some kind of way, share it with a friend, like, subscribe, and write a review. It means a lot to me. Thank you. So happy you're here with me daring to feel.